Turn me tonight, please, to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Written, of course, by the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations 3. Begin reading in verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath built it against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. Thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity, and I said my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And God will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We bow our heads for a moment, please. Let's seek the Lord. Lord, it's thy voice speaking through the written word that we need to hear now. We ask that thou wilt thyself come. Thou wilt be the true proclaimer of these wonderful truths, these sobering realities. We ask our God that we will find ourselves looking into a mirror tonight. We'll clearly see our own reflection 
And as we gaze into this book, we'll see that reflection change a bit so that we might see a little more of Christ in that reflection in the mirror of thy word. Less of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, this prophet was a man who was very much acquainted with grief and extreme sorrow of heart. We can understand why he has often been called the weeping prophet. More than any other Old Testament prophet, you will find that Jeremiah expressed grief at the unrepentant and stubborn nature of his people. Before he ever came out of the womb, God had ordained him to be a prophet to the nation of Judah. His message wasn't one that you would really delight to deliver if you had been a prophet, if you had been a preacher, because it was one of impending doom, as God had promised to judge his people for their rebellion and their idolatry. But in spite of his message, would they listen? Well, you know the story, I trust. They didn't listen at all. He was preaching to a wall. They wouldn't listen to it. From the kings, the princes, the priests, down to the vast majority of the people of the city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah and his message were met by open hostility, angry rejection, and fierce persecution. I can assure you that there had been many a man of God would have called upon God to curse a people who treated the Lord and treated his message and his servant with such contempt. But not Jeremiah. He didn't get mad with them. He didn't get angry. He didn't say, Lord, wipe them off the face of the earth. He saw this coming judgment of Jehovah. And instead of being glad that God was going to avenge his servant of all the wrong that was done him. And prove that his message was true. Jeremiah wept profusely over the awful disaster and destruction that would bring this untold heartache and death and pain to the people living in Jerusalem. He's the weeping prophet. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You see, there comes this time when you can only weep so much. The tears dry up, you can weep no more. And obviously, Jeremiah reached that point in time at the state of things. But he wants God, it was possible to make his head a fountain of water so he could keep weeping for the people who despised him. Jerusalem was about to experience the reality of those words of Solomon in Proverbs 29. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. 
sudden destruction was about to come to Jerusalem. Jeremiah knew it. And it broke his heart. Just as he had prophesied, that day came. And this book of Lamentations is a heart-wrenching account of the city of Jerusalem lying in ruins. The deep sorrow that it brought to see that. To Jeremiah's soul. Whether it's true or not, we don't know, but tradition amongst the Jews says that at the hour of her destruction, Jeremiah sat outside of the city walls from one of those hills and looked down at all the fire and the destruction and the death and the blood that ran in the streets. Whether true or not, we can't begin to imagine the sorrow that was filling his heart when he saw the inevitable come to pass. It did not lighten the load whatsoever. He knew nothing of peace in his heart at this point in time. All that Jeremiah felt was pain and misery. And from what he says at the end of verse 18, hopelessness. Hopeless for the work of God. Hopeless for God's people. Hopeless for his own soul. My hope is perished from the Lord. Is there any sadder feeling than that of hopelessness that can arise in the human heart? Take away all hope and you take away any reason to live. As long as there is some kind of hope, even it be just a tiny glimmer, that things, things just might get better. Then that situation which is causing so much angst, however dark it is, is bearable. You can live with it. As long as there's some degree of hope that things will get better. But take the hope away. Well, that's when people commit suicide. They have no hope. They are convinced that their life is going to be one chock full of misery upon misery upon misery. Pain upon pain upon pain. And there is no answer. They say to themselves, I'd be better off dead. Not realizing that they would not be better off dead. But it's because of hopelessness. Believe it or not, God's people, Christians, believers, can find themselves sitting in the very same spot that Jeremiah was sitting in. They look upon their life and their Circumstances and everything is as black as black can be. Everything is wrong. Everything is bad. Everything is coming to an awful, depressing end. And with Jeremiah, they say, My hope is perished from the Lord. 
You see, this, this prophet had come to a point in his life. This, this man of God, so used of God, had come to a point in his life where he was plagued with this disease of hopelessness. He's not exaggerating things here. He's telling the truth. I've lost hope. But he was eventually cured of that plague because he went from saying, my hope is perished, to saying, therefore have I hope. It's that word, therefore, that really introduces what I want to leave with you tonight and, God willing, next Lord's Day evening about a heart that is plagued with this disease of hopelessness. From verses 22 and 23, I want simply to preach on what we are to do when all hope is gone. When all hope is gone. When all of Jeremiah's hope had perished from the Lord, he remembered something about the Lord that just changed everything, and that's what you and I need to remember as well. Because you and I can be in a place where we feel absolutely hopeless about the work of the Lord. We can feel absolutely hopeless about the work of God in our own souls. Hopeless about some dark, dire situation. Let me say first that the best of God's people can be found with the heart diseased with hopelessness. The best of God's people. I would include Jeremiah among some of the best of God's people. If you have spent any time reading through this book with reflection, you realize that this man had astounding faith in the Lord. Astounding obedience. Astounding patience. Astounding humility. He was an eminent saint of God. And yet, when you read Lamentations chapter 3, you find this man had a heart that became diseased with hopelessness. The first 20 verses are taken up with that lamentation about his own circumstances and how he's feeling, what's going on inside of his own soul. And in that, in that lamentation, we're going to find out just what it is that, that marks and, and why there is this sense of hopelessness in the heart, even of the best of saints. First word I would use is displeasure. Displeasure. He felt that God was angry with him. Verse 1, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He believed that God was angry with him. And Christians can be found feeling the same way. It's all part and parcel to dropping into a sense of hopelessness. It's not the kind of wrath that... Uh, God is going to uh, pour out upon the wicked when he damns them to hell forever. Everlasting destruction, eternal, infinite wrath. Christ took all of that wrath upon himself on Calvary. We will never experience that kind of wrath at the hand of God because Christ has dealt with that wrath. We'll never, never know it. But the scriptures do make it clear that God does get angry with his people. 
Remember the psalmist in Psalm 74, Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? David said in Psalm 38, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. He sensed that God was angry with him. What we need to understand is that this, this anger that is, must be viewed in light of what's said in Ephesians chapter 4, where we are commanded to grieve not the Holy Spirit. That word grieve means to offend, it means to make sorrowful, it means to bring displeasure. That's the anger. Displeased. So God can indeed be displeased with his people. Even though his judicial wrath has been spent upon Christ. You, you, you better know that Jesus Christ was not happy. He was angry. He was displeased with his disciples when, after they had several witnesses come to them and say, we've seen the risen Christ, he upbraided them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Upbraided them. Because he was grieved with them. When you feel that the Lord is angry with you, he's displeased with you, it hurts. You feel it. And if that, if that hurt, that pain, that sense of the Lord's displeasure is not quickly dealt with by the gospel, it is a step in the direction of hopelessness. God's not happy with me. He's displeased by what I'm seeing. What's taking place? He must be displeased with me. There's a second thing that's part of this disease of the heart, and that is darkness. Jeremiah says in verse 2, He hath led me and brought me into darkness and not into light. He says it again in verse 6, He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. So you feel the Lord's displeasure. And now you're, you're in darkness. There is no light from the Lord's word shining upon the darkness. There is no light coming from heaven. There is no understanding at all of what in the world is going on. You are in absolute darkness. And you do not know the next step to take. You don't know the next prayer to make. You don't know what to do at all because you're sitting in darkness and you have no light. It's the light that brings comfort to our fears. It's the light that gives direction to our path when we clearly see the hand of God leading us, when we know that the Lord is directing us through His Word, then my, we can deal with so much, but when that has just, as far as we can tell, that has been taken away. 
when you find yourself walking in that darkness, seeing no light at the end of the tunnel, and no matter how much you go to God's word, there's no word for you at all. It is just like Job who looked to the left and to the right all around him and he couldn't find God. He didn't know what he was doing. Not knowing where God is, not knowing what God's doing. Or what you are supposed to do, or where you are to go in your next step, it can so affect your heart that it leads you down a path of despair, as it led Jeremiah down a path of despair. He says, He has led me and brought me into darkness and not into light. He has set me in dark places. God has done this. Something else is here. That's a deduction that he makes. What's the deduction? God's against me. Verse 3. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. There is no let up. God is against me continually. Verse 5, He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. So here's Jeremiah. Here's the heart that's diseased with this hopelessness. Jeremiah believes that he's become an enemy of God. Jeremiah? Here was the very fulfillment of the message that he had preached for years coming to pass. It was God's stamp of, I acknowledge that the word you preached was true. And yet here is Jeremiah as he sees what he sees with his eyes as the death and the destruction is is, is rampant. He believes that God has become his enemy and he is God's enemy. And that feeling is very difficult to bear when at other times you have clearly sensed that God is for you. If you've never experienced the the joy and the confidence that comes when you know, you know in your heart the Lord is for me and he will always be for me and not against me, then you really won't appreciate what Jeremiah would have felt when he said God is against me. In verse 10, he says, He, that's God, was unto me as a bear lying in wait, surprising me. I wasn't expecting this. Isn't that how it often is, child of God? We know about the trials. We know about the afflictions. We know about those attacks of hell. But when they finally come, I wasn't expecting it to be like this. Like a bear lying in wait. Jeremiah looked at God as a lion in secret places. So that he walked in fear that God at any moment would pounce on him again. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. 
To put it in the modern day vernacular, Jeremiah was thinking, what's going to go wrong next? And when God's hand, you're convinced that God's hand is continually turned against you. The hand of providence, the hand that directs all the affairs of our life, that brings us into places, takes us out of places, that brings things and people and events into our lives, that takes them out of our lives. When you are convinced that God's hand is continually turned against you, it's just a step before you believe that God's heart is also turned against you. Verse 12 and 13, he has bent his bow. He has set me as a mark for his arrow. The arrows of his quiver enter into my reins. God is against me. It's like he could, he could grasp. He, he saw Yes, these people, these idolaters, they've rejected God's messenger, they've rejected his message, they've gone on in their sin. God said this was going to happen, and he sent his judgment. Nebuchadnezzar has come and just decimated the city. But his bow is turned toward me now. I mean, this, this man is deeply affected. This is something very personal to him. The Lord's against me. Fourthly, he saw himself to be at a dead end. There's no way out of this. He hath built it against me, encompassed me. I've surrounded me with gall and travail. Verse 7, he hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. I am stuck here. There is no door out of this. There's no window to climb through. It's a dead end. Increasing and the reasons for this sense of hopelessness in his heart there was deafness from heaven. Heaven was silent to his praying. Verse 8, also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Can you picture this prophet? So often you see them in the Old Testament when they pray on their knees, on their faces before God, lifting up their hands to heaven. And he's saying, I am crying and I am shouting. Shouting. But heaven is deaf, he believes. When I cry and shout, and you know when you cry and shout, and I'm referring now to a genuine believer, when you cry and shout to God in prayer, it's a very clear indication of the depth of your earnestness, how much you want God to hear you. How desperate you are. You're thinking he's not listening. Lord, Lord, help. Yet he shuts out my prayer. 
And there is no answer coming. How often the Lord has assured his people that his ear is open to their cry, that if they ask, it shall be given them. If they seek, they shall find. But when even your cries and shouts, your most fervent praying to God, are shut out from heaven, and they are brass, your heart is tormented with the fear that the Lord is never going to hear me. He's never going to answer my prayers. Oh, that's a pathway to hopelessness. When you think, you see, it's, it's not enough to pray. Don't fall prey to the trap of the devil that all that you need is to just be diligent in praying. What good is the praying if answers aren't given? What good is it if the Lord doesn't answer prayer? All the praying in the world means nothing. The child of God who has faith in his heart must see answers to prayer. That's because he believed that God heard and answered prayer. Now that the heavens are brass, that he has this sense of hopelessness in his soul. Furthermore, there is derision. Nobody understands or cares. Jeremiah's neighbors make a laughing matter of his troubles. I was, verse 14, I was a derision to all my people. I am their song. Nobody understood or really cared about what that man was going through. That's a hard place to be in, you know. All of these things led to Jeremiah into this place where he felt there was no hope for deliverance. Thou hast removed, verse 17, my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. It had been so long since Jeremiah had known spiritual prosperity in his own heart. So long since he had known what it is to be happy in the Lord. So impossible did it seem to him that he would never know it. He says, I, f I forgot prosperity. I don't even know what it is anymore. To have the joy of the Lord. I've given up. So my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. I can't any longer lean upon the one, the God of heaven, to hold me up because he's against me. I can't look to him for direction because he's brought me into darkness. God's not going to help me anymore. Does that not describe a state of hopelessness? 
He's not going to help me ever again. When you come into that place, it doesn't matter what help men may seek to offer you. It's useless. It can't deal with the spirit of hopelessness within you. You know vain is the help of man. You know that only the Lord can help you. But Jeremiah is convinced that's, that's gone. That's history. The best, the best of God's people can find themselves plagued with a disease of hopelessness. Second thought, God has a cure for the heart that is plagued with this disease. Jeremiah says in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. So now it went from hopelessness, having no hope, to having hope. And so what did he recall to mind? I want you to see before I say one thing about this. This battle that you and I face is always taking place in our minds. In our minds. It's not the circumstances. It's in our minds. It's how we think about our circumstances. It's how we think about our circumstances that determines how we respond to our circumstances. It's how we think about God that determines how we respond to the hand of providence when it appears to be against us. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. What did Jeremiah do and what was the turning point? What must you and I do? Whether we can trace it or not, what have we done every time when we have felt ourselves to be in a hopeless state? Maybe you feel that way about the work. Covenant free. Hopeless. Come on now, let's face it. Let's just face it. Hopeless. Well, if you want to overcome the sense of hopelessness, first thing you've got to do is to remember the Lord's mercy. So he says in verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Mercy of God is an aspect of the goodness of God. It is the goodness, the kindness, the love of God shown to those who are in misery and distress irrespective of what they deserve. And that's the key point. Irrespective of what they deserve. What we deserve, what we have merited by our actions from the justice of God is full punishment for our sins. That's what we deserve. 
So what you and I need to recall to our mind, what we must inject into all of our thinking about our hopeless situation is that this mercy of God is preserving mercy. It preserves. It's not destructive mercy. It's preserving mercy. You know, our miseries in life, whatever form they take, are just a byproduct of sin. And we deserve every bit of misery that sin brings into our lives. Uh, Isn't that what Jeremiah goes on to say? Verse 39, Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Why complain? We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve misery. But God is good. And his, in His goodness, He does not give to His people what they really deserve. So the Lord's mercies were not consumed. The Hebrew, that word consumed, has this idea of being utterly consumed. It's it's true, the Babylonian army had come in and they had brought devastation with them. Like a flood, they had come in and plundered and pillaged and destroyed all that would have been dear to Jeremiah. Blood did run in the streets. And the slain just left there as corpses. The majority were taken off into captivity. He was left behind. The Lord's own people. Jeremiah was excluded here. He, it was God's plan for him to remain behind, but the majority of the Lord's own people, not talking about the idolaters, not talking about those who were godless and wicked amongst the Jews. The true believing Jews were hauled off into captivity where they would spend 70 years. But they deserved much worse. Jeremiah recalls the reason they were not consumed altogether. There was a remnant that would be left, and that remnant was all because of the mercy of God, because that mercy is preserving mercy, and God will always preserve the remnant. Things were bad. I had to acknowledge that. But had it not been for God's mercy, they could have been far worse. You stop to think about that when you sense the feeling of hopelessness. Things are bad. But they could be worse. Matthew Henry said, When we are in distress, we should, for the encouragement of our faith and hope, observe what makes for us as well as what makes against us. Yes, these things have, you know, 
the Lord's displeased with this, but, but at the same time, I must look at those things that show that God is for us and he's for me. I'm not early consumed. You see, faith does not put on blinders. Doesn't play make-believe. Faith in God's mercy does not deny the reality of the difficulty, of the trouble, or the depth of the misery in the heart. But it does remember that God shows mercy in the very midst of our misery. And we need to look for it. Because if you don't look for mercy to preserve, you will give up. You will be hopeless. The Lord did not reverse what he was doing to Jerusalem. Jeremiah saw it's not going to be a reversal of these circumstances, bringing all these Jews back and giving them revival that's going to make me hope again. It's believing and remembering in the mercy of God that will preserve his work. How else, how else would you carry on if you didn't think that? No matter how bad it gets, your circumstances are mine. I know one thing. As bad as it gets is being in hell. That is as bad as it gets. And I'll never be there. And if you're his, you'll never be there. So the worst that can happen. I'm not going to hell. Surely it puts the situation in a different light, doesn't it? Jeremiah was surrounded by apostates, idolatry, and sin of every sort. He was the, the, the brunt of horrific persecution. Dropped down into a pit, and he says he sank into the mire. Yet through all the suffering, through all the heartaches, Though all the loneliness and the feelings depressed at times, even when he felt his hope in the Lord had perished, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of the Lord, preserved him, it kept him. I, I would not be in the ministry right now if the Lord had not kept me. wouldn't happen. I would have walked away long, long ago. You would have walked away from 
God if he had not preserved you. Don't you dare think it's your willpower that's kept you. It's the will of God that's kept you. It's his preserving mercy. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I tend to think that the, the bulk of God's people, especially when they are in depress, depression or distress and hopelessness, become very downcast and disturbed, respecting their own salvation. I wonder if that's not one of the big reasons why there are so many fear-nots in the Bible. The, the pretenders to salvation never have any need of fear-nots because they know nothing of what it is to struggle with the sin that's within that the Lord's people struggle with. It's the ones who've been truly converted that have found themselves in dark seasons because they've been in the light. They're the ones that wonder if the Lord has actually done a work of grace in them or their religion is just, you know, one of the flesh. It's all external. And in cases like this, they easily can feel that their, their hope in the Lord is gone. Their faith seems to be nowhere discoverable. And their heart is cold, and now God is not answering their prayers, and so they feel it's hopeless, and I might as well give up. But you know what I have found every time you just said, well, you just go ahead and give up then. They can't do it. It's so bad. Just go ahead and give up. They can't. Why can't they? Because of preserving mercy. That would be the counsel of Spurgeon sometimes to those who came in to him with that sense of hopelessness. I just want to give up. Well, go ahead, give up. Go ahead. Just walk away. They were shocked. But, 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 Mr. Spurgeon, I can't do that. Well, why can't you? I just can't. They couldn't because God's mercy wouldn't let it happen. It's preserving mercy. It's plenteous mercy. Note the word mercies is in the plural. It means not only a, a number, more than one, but a variety of mercies. So the psalmist says in Psalm 86, verse 15, Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth, abounding in mercy and truth. Henry said this, God is an inexhaustible fountain of mercy. He's an inexhaustible fountain of mercy. I know one thing that God's mercies far outnumber my sorrows and my troubles and my pains. He 
if we're going to have a heart that's filled with hope again, then we have to believe that. We've got to think upon that one. He recalls this to mind, and that turned for him. This mercy from the Lord, there are mercies, there are variety, and there's far more mercy to deal with my sins and my failures and all that's wrong. Ah, but you forget that. You, you lose sight of that, child of God, and then you're thinking, ha, I'm sure it's hopeless, because you've forgotten all about the mercy. That, that kindness of God, that generosity of God. Have you forgotten about the many mercies the Lord has shown you? I think it's one of the hardest things in the world to do, personally. When the sense of hopelessness comes, is to sit down and count my many blessings and to name them one by one. I find that I don't even remember to do that. All I see is what's wrong. All I see is what's going to destroy my peace or my usefulness or my happiness. It's true, you and I have had heartaches and we've had sorrows that would seem to break our heart in pieces. But for every trial and for every tear that we've shed, the Lord has always meant it with some mercy some kindness he's done to us. Do you? No, you wouldn't know. Because I, I rarely say anything about it. How many times in 30 years of ministry that I have been brought to a place of hopelessness? despair convinced that I'm a liability and not an asset to God's work right in the midst of that there's an email or a text that comes and says just the opposite It's just the mercy of God. Just the goodness. He sees a child. And he knows the child is weak from the dust of the ground. And he sends the mercy at just the right time. And then I recall to my mind, it's of the Lord's mercies that I'm not consumed. And hope is restored. Back in the early summer, not long after I announced that I was stepping down from this work, I received the email from the clerk of Presbytery saying that my resignation had been received and that all pastoral ties had been severed with this congregation 
just official language, and that's the actual truth of the matter. It hit me like a ton of bricks, severed. So that morning I went to the Lord to lament, thinking that this is just the Lord setting me aside. And that morning, in Spurgeon's reading, he dealt with Isaiah 41, 9. Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. That was the text the Lord used to call me to the ministry 30-some years ago. There was a tender mercy of God. But you know the human heart like I do. It wasn't but a month later I was feeling the same way. As the time was drawing closer. The Lord's just done with me. Too many faults and failures to be of help to him. That morning McShane's reading was Isaiah 41. It's called double mention. And I don't know what that will be like, what it will look like down the road. But I know he's not done with me. Some ministry I've got. I just tell you that, that this is, this is the Lord's mercy. It's promised mercy because it's the Lord's mercies. The name there is Jehovah. That's the covenant name of God. Covenant brings us to the covenant of grace. Where God has sworn, he's taken this oath, he's lifted his own hand and sworn that we will always be his people. He will always be our God and do for us whatever is necessary to bring us safe to glory. It's covenant. Mercy. And so David writes in Psalm 103 the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. His mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136. Isaiah 55 I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So here is Jeremiah sitting in darkness and sitting in despair. But God in loving kindness comes to his downcast servant and, and enables him to recall to his mind simply the fact, the truth that God's mercy is covenant mercy. He can't go back on his covenant. It's unbreakable. God does not break his covenants. And he can always depend upon it. And surely that's why David said at the end of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's promised this. And all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. So since this mercy is covenant mercy, since it is promised mercy, you have every right 
every right and every obligation to take it to God and to plead it as one of his promises. Lord, you promised to show me. You promised to show your people mercy. Now do what you said you would do. Things began to turn for Jeremiah when he began to think like that. We'll stop there and come back, God willing, next week to what helped this man through a very desperate time in his life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, in the Savior's name, we come thanking Thee that Thy mercies are new every morning. Oh, Lord, give us those eyes to see them. Work so upon our minds that we think thoughts after God that we think according to Scripture and not according to our own understanding. Lord, lead us more and more away from walking by sight instead of living by faith. Save us, Lord, from this disease of hopelessness that will always lead us astray. Show us thy mercy, and it sufficeth us. In Jesus' name we ask all of this. Amen and amen.